Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. So when I was um, in high school, uh, I learned how to perfect my dad's signature, which became a very useful skill for me because I also had a class in my first period that I hated going to. The only way to get out of the class that you hate going to is with a signed parent note excusing you for arriving late to school. Perfect, like the perfect scenario. So a buddy of mine, uh, Andrew and I, we got really good at signing parents' signature. This is not a lesson to learn for any kids that are still in the room. Uh, we got really good at signing our parents' signature, and rather than going to chemistry, uh, I would instead go to um, Caribou Coffee, uh, which was like five minutes away from the school, really easy to step into, nice, quiet, lovely space, and we would just hang out for that hour and a half and then drive over for second period. And we would have a perfectly crafted parent note excusing our absence with my dad's signature right at the bottom. Perfect. Turns out if you miss a lot of first period over and over and over again, the guidance counselor starts to ask questions like, what's happening at home that might make him late all the time? It also happens to be the case that my guidance counselor was also the head coach of the lacrosse team uh, for which I was a part. So he started seeing all these notes that Patrick Fallhaber is late for first period with a parent signed note. And what he started to put together is that there must be something going on. So he, Coach Hayden, called my dad, who is also a teacher. So he had to leave his classroom, which is a big no-no. My dad had to leave his classroom and come to the office phone to answer the guidance counselor at his high school son's school, say, um, why is it that your son is always late to school? Oh, indeed, yeah. It was not a great conversation uh, when I got home. So Coach Hayden got off the phone with my dad, and then he called me down to the office to talk to him. Now, my coach had other issues going on, too, where he would call the captains and seniors down to his office sometimes in the middle of class and sign us to be late for other things so that we could talk about the game coming up later that day. So like, you know, everything's shades of gray here. But he called me down to the office, pulled me out of class, called me down to the office and said, um, I was finally able to talk to your dad about why you've been late so often. And in my head, honestly, this my honest first thought was like, oh, wow, he like went along with it. That's crazy. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he did not. He did not go along with it. And you guess what I did? Rather than taking any sort of accountability for my action, you know who I blamed. Well, I wish I could have blamed Andrew. He was, he was faster than me. Who I blamed was my chemistry teacher. 
It's like, well, I tried to go to my chemistry teacher to ask for help because I wasn't doing well in the class, didn't understand the material. I ended up rightly studying, you know, uh, literature and philosophy. That is my bread and butter. I am not a, like, I don't understand all the letters and the way that they combine and the way they don't combine. That's just all too much for my head. I can't even explain it to you now. See what's happening? I'm bad at chemistry. So I went to my teacher and was like, listen, I don't understand. I would really love some extra help and um, like offered to like come during lunch or if there's some way for me to get additional tutoring, if he knew of anybody. And what he said was, well, just read the book and you'll figure it out. So obviously it's his fault I wasn't in school, right? I mean, obviously, and I put all the blame on him. Of course, my parents wouldn't hear any of that, but I still, like, I, I remember I even believed what I was saying, that what me doing something wrong was not actually my fault, it was his fault. And then when my coach obviously couldn't play us, my whole church showed up to watch us play because it was a homecoming game my senior year. My whole church showed up to watch me and Andrew play, and we were both benched on the sidelines, and my buddy Andrew was the first to say, oh, I pulled my hamstring. And I can't use the same excuse. So I said, well, my chemistry teacher wouldn't let me play. <laughs> we, because of me, yeah, we lost because I wasn't there, for sure. No, we scheduled, we scheduled the like definite win on homecoming. You want a happy day, but um, I feel like that's just a part of at least my nature to like want to avoid and distract and like place the blame on everybody else around me rather than actually taking it on for myself. I don't know if you're that way, but that's, it's just so easy to do, just so easy to look around you and avoid actually taking the responsibility for what you may have done wrong. I can think of so many moments when I've done something you know, stupid and harmless like that. But also so many times where, you know, I said something that hurt someone's feelings and my response is always like, oh, you know, I, I, well, I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know. Why are you coming at me like that? Like I didn't, obviously that's not what I intended. You know, like I won't, rather than just saying, wow, I'm sorry, thank you for letting me know that this hurt you and I won't do it again. I immediately want to shove all of that feedback to the side. Like, I would never hurt. Why would you say I would hurt you? And brush it off, avoid it, push it to the side so that I never have to like navigate that sense of guilt. I know others of us have the opposite issue where we just let all of that guilt pile up in a way that turns into shame and then we can't ever let go of it. And I think all of us exist somewhere on a spectrum there. Or rather we try to avoid every bit of guilt so we never have to wrestle with something that's hard or we let it just mount up on top of us with shame that becomes debilitating. And either way, what ends up suffering is the relationships that we're in. The story of David and Bathsheba is not only tragic, it's horrific. Um, if you're not familiar with the story, it's a story about David, who is described in scripture as being a man after God's own heart, takes, takes a woman and forcibly has sex with her. 
she ends up married or ends up pregnant. And what does David do in response to that? He tries to make it right, not by acknowledging his guilt, but instead by finding a way to kill her husband on the front lines of battle. It's a horrible story. Or David, it's like he makes a horrible mistake and then he uses every avenue that he can find to try to avoid taking any real responsibility for it. Because, you know, by law, in Scripture, committing adultery of any kind is punishable by, by death. Like, that's the law handed by Moses, you know, committing uh, sin against one of the Ten Commandments, especially adultery. You are put to death. David himself, the king of Israel, performs a crime within his own population that is punishable by death. But... You see how he's trying to find his way around it. Rather than if if she weren't married anymore, you know, if her husband died, then he wouldn't have to worry about that. You see how easy it is to just dig deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole that you can't get out of. David ends up marrying Bathsheba, which I can't even imagine the kind of trauma that that would have over Bathsheba's life. And she sort of finds her way through it, but it's incredible because David was a man after God's own heart. And there are a lot of um, people out there who use that knowledge about who David is to claim Bathsheba is really the one who was to blame. There's actually a whole book called The Bad Girls of the Bible that is actually a bestseller, like New York Times bestseller. And <laughs> it's basically every girl in the Bible, HP. <laughs> but like the, the, the claim there is that she was a seductress. It was her fault. Right, yeah. And like... You see how easy it is? It's the same language we use today, right? Whenever someone makes an accusation against someone in power about any sort of misconduct, the question is always about, well, why did you put yourself in that position? Because we don't like to think about the people that we respect as being flawed. We put people up on a pedestal and assume that everything about them must be good and right and just in every scenario. And as it turns out, he's still just another dude. What I think that we can learn from David, and I, I've been spending a lot of time with this. It, it, there's a couple of things. First... Um, as I've learned from uh, one of my favorite authors, Terry Pratchett, and one of the witches, so happy Halloween, is that um, the root of all evil is when we treat people as things. And that, that's it. As soon as you start treating the people around you as objects of your own satisfaction in whatever category that may be, that becomes the root. 
And then evil builds and builds and builds like that snowball. And then suddenly we look around us and wonder why we're surrounded by so much of it. It's those little things. As soon as we start thinking of the people around us as objects for us to gain some satisfaction or some pleasure or some joy from, rather than as fellow created beings who are gifted and who have their own desires and needs for life and celebrating that, as soon as we start to disregard those needs in other people's lives and simply prioritize our own wants in our lives, we're participating in that granular um, corruption of the world. The root of evil is treating people as things. And for most of David's life, he got that. I mean, he, the reason that he is named as being a man after God's own heart is because he came from relatively humble origins. He uh, defeated Israel's greatest, greatest fears, not with implements of war, but implements of being a shepherd. He was simple. He understood what was happening. When, when the kingdom, the mantle of leading this, this kingdom of people, this tribe of people into Jerusalem and setting up the first capital city of God's kingdom, David danced at the front of the parade wearing the clothing of the priestly garments, walking in and establishing the city of Jerusalem as a temple for the worship of God. As he was aging, he started to, like, create space that was safe for the worship of God. And he prioritized his relationship with the prophet Nathan. And he prioritized his relationship with all the people who really should have just been vassals of his. He prioritized their well-being until everything starts to shift in the book of Second Samuel. And we see that, and this is what Abraham read for us in Second Samuel chapter 11, David, for the first time, stays home when his army goes off to battle. He's no longer participating in his own kingdom's work, and he gets, prior, he gets uh, overly focused on his own internal want and desire. All of the men in his kingdom are off to battle, and what is he surrounded by? But all of their wives, and what does he do? He takes one for himself. And you see, even the way I'm describing this story, she has become an object, even in the way that we tell the story. No. David... I'm trying not to use, like, bad language, but he, like, really screws everything up here in a way that is not redeemable. And when Nathan brings a story to David just about a ewe lamb that some other guy stole for himself, Nathan tells him, you're the man. You're the man I'm describing. You're the one who's stealing, who's breaking, who's corrupting. You're the one who's destroyed all of this. And what we see from the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel on is exactly what God says from now forward, I will bring a sword to your house. And the very next chapter, David's own son, Absalom, makes a, um, 
threatens the throne of David, and David has to flee from Jerusalem. Nothing good comes when we treat people as things. The only thing that I think is redeemable about David in this story, HP, and this is not to make it better, is that he learns the language for the first time. He learns the language of confession for the first time. If you've ever read through the book of Psalms, you see a lot of what David has to say is grief, pain, being hunted by other people. But when you get to Psalm 51, and I'm just going to read it, and this will really be how I um, end today. When you get to Psalm 51, it's the first psalm of confession that we see in the Bible. And it's the first Israelite leader who makes a confession. He doesn't try to excuse what he's done. He doesn't try to fix what's been done. He confesses his own wrongdoing. And I think that is where some of us could learn even better. How do you acknowledge guilt for what's been done wrong by you without assuming everything will be better on the other side of it? Because as we all know, there are consequences for our actions. Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoing according to your great compassion. Wash me completely clean of guilt. Purify me of sin because I know my wrongdoings. My sin is always right in front of me. I've sinned against you. I've committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict, completely correct when you issue your judgment. Yes, I was born in guilt and sin from the moment my mother conceived me. And yes, you want truth in the most hidden places. You teach me wisdom in the most secret space. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crush rejoice once more. Hide your face from my sin. Wipe away my guilty deeds. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside me. Please don't throw me out of your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will come back to you. Deliver me from violence, God, God of my salvation, so that my tongue can sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will proclaim your praise. You don't want sacrifices. If I gave an entirely burned offering, you would not be pleased. A broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise my heart, God, that is broken and crushed. Do good things for Zion by your favor. Rebuild Jerusalem's walls then you will again want sacrifices of righteousness, entirely burned offerings and complete offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. David God does not abandon David, but David is no longer at the center of the story. God joins, as is always the case in the Bible, 
God steps to the margin of the story and lifts up those who've been wounded and oppressed by the power that is used unjustly. And this doesn't make everything that happened to Bathsheba okay. It doesn't. But what God does is pivot the promise to David into Bathsheba's lineage. And her son, Samuel, or uh, excuse me, Solomon, her son, Solomon, becomes the next king of Israel. It doesn't make what David's done right. It doesn't mean that Bathsheba didn't experience the incredible hardship that she faced. But it does mean that God pivots the focus of the story to give her power in this narrative. And that's how God continues to work in our lives. When we've done wrong, we should confess. And when we've been harmed, we can take heart that God is starting to focus in on our story in order to bring new life, redemption, reconciliation in the ways that that can happen. Praise be to God for that. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org.